Today we're back in Acts chapter 17, and one of the really amazing sections of Acts in the sense of the contrast, the cultural contrast and the contrast of ideas where Paul comes in to Athens and runs in uh, to polytheism and philosophy and various ideas and then confronts that and shares about Christ. So that's what we're going to do. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather in your name for your goodness and kindness. And we ask you to give us wisdom as we study the Bible together. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Acts 17, 16 through 20. Paul confronts idolatry in Athens. The first thing we're going to look at is verse 16. And I'm going to spend a little time looking at this word provoked. Provoked. Here's what it says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, remember, they were going to go back, bring others. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, remember Paul, Jewish teacher, trained under a Jewish rabbi, certainly committed to the monotheism of the Bible, then converted to Christ, the Trinitarian God of the Bible is monotheistic. One God, three persons. Christianity is not compatible with polytheism. Now, idolatry is certainly what was going on in Athens. And as we see before, even dealing with this God or that God, he runs into some philosophers, if we get that far, who weren't particularly polytheistic either, but they had their own philosophy. And it's very much like America today, isn't it? We've got various philosophies, polytheistic ideas, atheistic ideas, panentheistic ideas, and then people that have this deity or that deity. And the gospel confronts all of them. Now, the word provoked in the Greek, uh, parozuno, parozuno, is often used in the Old Testament for God being provoked by idolatry. So here we have Paul being provoked by the very thing that often God was provoked by in the Old Testament, which is idolatry. And interestingly, this word is used in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, where Paul says love is not easily provoked. And why is that? In, I find it interesting for this reason. I think as Christians, we probably get provoked about the wrong things. Okay? And in Corinth, they were provoked about other Christians 
who did things differently or had different gifts or there's a lot of reasons why they were provoked. But what provokes God is idolatry and blasphemous, godless ideas and practices. And I think we can be certainly strong in our opinions, but I, I'm trying to help myself think biblically. Yeah, by, by thinking about binding and loosing. We have a new article. It's done. It's going to be published. And it's on creedalism. And Jessica and I worked on it. I got it laid out, got it corrected, and it was going out. And I'm contending against the institutional church and creedalism. But in the article, we talk about binding and loosing. Do you know what binding and loosing is? Binding is requiring something or forbidding something that God requires or forbids if it's valid binding. Loosing is saying you're free, meaning there's liberty. So for Christians, binding and loosing is grounded in the teachings of Christ and his apostles. And there's an awful lot of things that aren't bound that are matters of Christian liberty. And in my 50 years of being a Christian, I'd have to say an awful lot of, of us, me included, get provoked over things that are actually Christian liberty. And that's what we want to beat each other about. Boom, 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 boom. How dare you? And then you think about it. Can we do binding and loosing? And what does Christ bind through the teachings of his apostles? And what is a matter of liberty? Now, there's a legitimate thing to debate that. But if something's a matter of liberty that I need the peace of God in my heart about it if somebody else has a liberty that rubs me the wrong way. Does that make sense? So I'm just sharing what I'm trying to... I'm not saying I'm very good, but I'm working on it. May God help me not to be provoked about what God says is liberty. There's enough idolatry to be provoked about. Yeah, right. So let's deal with what God is, says is not right. It is wicked. And the world certainly isn't going to change until judgment comes. But we need to identify what is and is not sin. Now here, Paul was provoked, parazuno, over idolatry. And Luke would say, I believe, by implication for the context, validly so. It was valid that the idolatry of Athens provo was provoking to God's apostle. Let me give you some quotes, and then I'll point out 
some of the gods, just so you know how many they had. Uh, Dr. Schnabel's commentary has been fantastic. If anybody's looking for a commentary on Acts, but here's what he said. Since Athens was one of the oldest cities that Paul visited, the number and diversity of cult images might have exceeded anything that he had seen. If the theater of Ephesus alone displayed 29 gold statues of Artemis and 120 statues of Nike and Eros, the temples and public spaces of Athens would certainly have been endowed with many more visualizations of the deities that the Athenians worshiped. Many, many more than even in Ephesus, okay? Now, let me just quote uh, Schnabel about just how many, just get a clue what provoked Paul. Let's just go through, I'll go through a list here. Athene, the goddess of wisdom and the patron of the city. Of course, Athens, Athene, had three temples on the Acropolis, a small temple in the Agora, and also was worshiped in the Bulletarian in the temple of Hephaestus. Demeter, the goddess of vegetation and fertility, was worshiped in the Eleusian, uh, located at the road from the Agora to the Acropolis. Apollo was worshiped in a temple located next to the Stoa of Zeus. A monumental statue of the god was discovered in the area of the Agora, by the way. Agora was marketplace. This is where they debate. That's where Paul debate the philosophers. Artemis was worshiped on the Acropolis as Artemis uh, Bro, Bronia and in the Agora of Artemis Bulia. Aphrodite was worshiped in at least two excavations in the city. This is things they found in that city through excavation. Other temples dedicated to the worship of Ares, Asclepius, Asclepius Dionysus, Hecate, Hephaestus, Hera, Hercules, Hermes, Astia, Pan, Poseidon, the Olympian gods, the Phrygian mother goddess, the Egyptian gods, Isis, Serapis, Harpocrates, and Arubus, abstractions including Demos, Nike, which means victory, so now you know where the tennis shoes came from, the emperors as well as heroes such as Theseus, Hippothon, Antiochus, Ajax, Leos. <laughs> well, you get the idea. <laughs> on and on and on. So let's make something else a deity. So that's what provoked Paul. And there were some of philosophers, and we'll deal with that, the Epicureans and um, um, Stoics. They're, they're different. They weren't quite the same kind of people, but the mass of the peoples were dedicated to gods, deities, temples, statues, and so forth. And the absurdity of it is, should be obvious to us, but that is the history 
of the fallen world. Now, what I want to show you is that the Greek Septuagint Old Testament used the same word, parozuno, for God's response to unbelief and idolatry. That provoked God. So the first one is Numbers 14.11. Numbers 14.11. Now, it's not totally shocking that pagans are idolaters, but how bad is it when believers are idolaters? Numbers 14, 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people provoke me? I'm quoting from an English translation of the Septuagint that I have in my logo software. Yours probably says something a little different. How long will those people provoke me? How long will they not trust in me by the means of the signs that I perform among them? Numbers 14, 11. What was that all about? There's any people who knew the one God was the true God. It was the wilderness wanderers. Why? What's this thing about signs and wonders? It's about the Exodus. Now, can you imagine? You're in Egypt, and they have all these gods, and God did all these signs and wonders, some of them dealing with actual gods they had, defeating them, and then defeats Egypt as a whole, through the sign of the blood and the Passover and coming out through the Red Sea by mighty miracle showing that Moses spoke for God and that Israel was the people of God and that he brought them, as it says, on eagle's wings to Sinai to himself. But then, what did they do? They built the golden calf. Ironically, even while Moses is receiving revelation from God, the law, they're down there building a golden calf. Now, what was their reason for building the golden calf? Does anybody know? Go ahead. Oh, you got a mic. They wanted something to see and touch. Right. We can't see Moses. Where's Moses? There's a cloud. He went up there. All these things happened. We can't see him. Let's build a golden calf. So one of the things that lies behind the sort of idolatry that provoked Paul was the creation of deities that could be tangible and controlled by humans. They made them. They can destroy them. Here's the question. What good is a God that you get sick of and melt down? Is that God going to save you? No. If you make it out of lead, you can always melt it down and make fishing jigs. That's what I do. 
I don't, I don't make idols, but I make fishing jigs. So, obviously, these gods did not have valid ontological status of deity. What do I mean by that? Well, the God who created the entire universe is eternal, non-contingent, omniscient, omnipotent, and he's the judge of all the earth. He created the entire universe out of nothing. Now, where did these gods and goddesses in Athens come from? Man, sinners, created deities and then decided to worship them. That provoked Paul. When God's people fell into idolatry, as narrated in Numbers 14 11, it provoked God. How long will these people provoke me? I showed them who I am, God says through Moses. They saw me defeat all the gods of Egypt, and I demonstrated who I am. I am that I am at the burning bush, the eternal, non contingent, contingent. God who exists. Any deity that came into being based on some other action, whether it's God's or man's, is not God. Because if you have a beginning of existence, you're not eternal. That's why you can't actually become God. Because if you become, you weren't. If you weren't, you're not. I think that actually makes sense. Does that make sense? I think I said that like that before. Somebody wrote a book about the Mormons called The God Makers. God lives on another planet. He can be, he became God, and he was a man who became God, and we can learn how to be humans that can become God or whatever. But that's, you're equivocating on the term God. Does anything like that ever come into the Christian church? Oh, yes. Deification of a person named Mary, who's not really the Mary of the Bible. The Mary of Rome isn't really the Mary of the Bible, though they say she is. Not creation in the minds of Rome. Not eternal having no status, not omniscient, not able to hear the prayers of billions of people at the same time, not even possible. So that's not the Mary who was a sinner saved by grace, dishonoring to her. What about the Word of Faith movement? What about their Jesus? We just went through the uh, reminding ourselves of the triumphal entry death on the cross and resurrection of Christ, the word of faith movement says that Jesus lost his divinity on the cross and died and went into hell. And then while in hell, had to fight with Satan, mano a mano, to get authority over the earth back. Because Adam had committed high treason, quoting Kenneth Copeland, and turned authority over the earth to Satan. 
So Jesus had to go to hell and wrestle back from Satan. And he managed to do that, they say, and came back. And then, according to the same lie, in Matthew 28, he gives all authority to the church. But, according to Copeland and his fellow heretics, the church fumbled it away, gave it back to Satan. But now, according to the New Apostolic Reformation, we're going to get it back. We're going to get the authority over the earth back. Now, I've written about this since the early, since early 90s. Here's the problem. There's tons of problems, and let me just give you one that destroys the whole thing. Jesus, who loses the divinity, isn't God. Because divinity is, is, I am that I am. Now, the incarnation is real, but Jesus preexisted as God, as Eric and I say almost every Sunday. So deity is not contingent. Deity that is lost is not deity as defined in the Bible. Deity that is gained is not the deity as defined in the Bible. So according to Bill Johnson, Mike Bickle, uh, Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Hagen Jr., Kenneth Copeland, all of these people, they have a different Jesus. Because they denied the deity of Christ. And I say that is blasphemous and worth being provoked about. It's as bad as building a golden cat. They deify themselves, exalt themselves as the masters of the universe, and blaspheme Christ. No, Friday night, a week ago, Friday night, I showed, I think clearly from Scripture, that Jesus didn't die and go to hell. He died and was sent into heaven. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There's nowhere in the Bible says Jesus lost his deity. Because deity doesn't come and go. It is. Jesus said, I am. Does that make sense? All right. So, the provocation is caused by idolatry, which is assigning deity to created things. Even if it's the universe. That's a popular one. I was witnessing to one person who was cutting my hair. This was decades ago. And she, and I, and she was telling about some problem. I said, well, you need to come to God. And she said, oh, I put myself in the hands of the universe. You know what I said to her? The universe doesn't care about you. What do you the universe is impersonal. It's, it's created. There's personalities in the universe. False gods and demigods or whatever, but demons. But only the true God who created actually has the power to care and love and forgive sins and give the gift of eternal life. That's the God we're talking about. Not the universe. The universe is created as vast as the universe is. 
It's still created. It's still finite. Big, 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 really big, still finite. God isn't finite. Paul's going to deal with some of this when he preaches these people. That's why it's such a fascinating uh, encounter in Athens. God doesn't need to be served by human hands. So Paul's going to deal with that. There's others. Did anybody, somebody look up Deuteronomy 9, 7, and 8. We'll see what it says in your Bible. And then I have a translation from the Septuagint that has that same word, para, parozuno, parozuno. Deuteronomy 9, 7, and 8. All right, Dan, you got a mic too there, don't you? Deuteronomy 9, 7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you de departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. Right. Provoked. Provoked. Why? Because they had as much evidence as you can have at that time that Yahweh was the true and only God. He defeated all the gods of Egypt and brought them out and he did creative miracles. Bread, water. And he revealed himself and chose them as a people descended from Abraham. So they provoked him. From the day you came out of Egypt, you came to this place, you've continually been disobedient to the Lord and provoked the Lord. Now, remember Moses interceded? God says, all right, I'm going to wipe them out. I'll start over with you. And Moses interceded. He said, no, 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 don't do that. And he brought a remnant to the promised land. Deuteronomy 32, 16. I'll read 16 through 19. I have it here. A translation from uh, right, right from the Septuagint. They provoked me to foreign things with their abominations. They provoked me. They sacrificed. Notice Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. This is Septuagint translated into English, Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. What did Paul say somewhere? That the gods are demons, right? Didn't he say that? Who's going to find that? Yeah, I think so. I can't give you the verse. If anybody finds it, I don't have any reward other than what you got in front of you. A cup of coffee. But, but I think that that's a, probably comes from this Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they had not known. New recent ones. Oh, Look at that, Deuteronomy 32, 17. New recent ones. 
Maybe we need to create a new God. Wouldn't that be nice? What's the irony there? A recent God is a God because he's eternal. Yes. Did you get it? I have uh, 1 Corinthians 10.20. Uh, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become uh, sharers in demons. Perfect. What was the reference here? 10? 1 Corinthians 10.20. You got it. I see you brought your own coffee, but you get... Uh, you get the astute, astute reading here. All right, you looked it up. Well, you got to know how to look things up. So I think that that's probably an allusion to Deuteronomy 32:17. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. Now, one of the things we know about demons, besides the fact they're not really God, is that they want to harm us. Right? As one theologian I heard said, they have your own best disinterest in mind. So you don't want to fellowship with demons. You don't want to sacrifice to demons. You want to always go only to God. Recent ones whom their fathers had not known. They're the wrong, they're not deities. Verse 32, Deuteronomy 32, 18. You forsook God who bore you and forgot God who nourished you and the Lord saw and was jealous and he was provoked, there's our word again, on the account of his anger against the sons, his sons and daughters. They provoked God. So now we find out that the gods like they had in Athens behind them are demons. Now, here's one. Let's all turn to this together. Zechariah 10, 2 and 3, because it brings out an idea that we've talked about quite a bit. I wrote an article about this idea. What happens when God visits a person or a people? What's the other one? Okay, go ahead and answer it. You got it. You judgment got it. or salvation. Yeah. When God visits, it'll either mean judgment or salvation. We're going to talk about idolatry and the visitation of God. All right. You have it. Zechariah 2. Uh, 10. Excuse me. Zechariah 10, 2 and 3. I'm going to read again from this English translation of the Septuagint. Because the ones who speak spoke troubles and the seers have false visions and they are speaking false dreams and they propose pointless ideas. Doesn't that sound like a lot of the books in the Christian bookstore? It does. I used to have a whole library, a research library of heresy so I could write articles and footnote them. And there are seers of false visions and people claiming to be prophets with false dreams, people proposing pointless ideas that only harm and never help. That's our world today. 
Then I'll, I'll continue to read Zechariah 10 too. They will be dried up like sh sheep and they will be afflicted because there was no healing. Verse 3, Zechariah 10. My wrath is provoked against the shepherds and I will visit, there's our word, episcop, <laughs> let me get this right, episcopomai, episcopomai, I will visit, that's where we get our word episcopal, I will visit upon the lambs and the Lord Almighty will examine his flock, the house of Judah, and he will appoint them as his beautiful horse in battle. So he's going to visit, bring judgment and salvation, bring what will be good and judge what's bad. That's a visitation. Now, is the translation from the Hebrew different to that? Significantly, can anybody say? Zechariah 10, 2 and 3. Is the word provoked in there? Is visit in there? Well, my uh, American standard uses the term teraphim, which is the same thing. Okay. And then uh, in verse 3, the uh, New American Standard says, the anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. Okay. But Bob, <clears throat> All right. this makes me think of in the New Testament, and I don't know where it is right now, but we know that the, the, the teachers of the false word are going to be punished more than the flock. And here, that points that out, that God's anger is kindled against the shepherds. The false shepherds. Yeah, and, and that's where uh, right. it's directed. Right. I know. It's a scary thing. But there's no fear of God. Honestly, you, you, people give these grandiose prophecies, and when they don't come true, they say, well, can't get everything right, I'll try something else. And they don't even know how to blush. I've been writing articles about this. Now, we started in 1992 on Article 1, Binding and Loosing. What's binding and loosing? Well, they thought it was controlling the demons. I said, no, it's forbidding and permitting. Proved it from Scripture. Well, that's, now it'll be 29 years. They don't care. They ignore you. How many books? I've heard this. How many books have you sold? Oh, I don't know. Not very many. Well, I've sold millions. I must be right. Well, it's like Paul going into Athens and saying, well, how many gods do you have, Paul? One. Well, we got all kinds of gods. You've got a pretty pathetic religion with only one god. But the issue isn't numbers. It's what is valid, what's true. Okay, so let's just look at what's true. If you give a dream or a vision and it doesn't come to pass, God said, I didn't send that prophet. Deuteronomy 13. But I'm testing you to see whether you love God or not. If you love God, you'll listen to his messengers, which are the writers of scripture. Now, let's look in the New Testament. This isn't on a slide, but I, I may have mentioned it the other night. Luke 1, 67, 68. 
Now here's the real visitation of God. Luke 1, 67, 68. And after his father, this was John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Luke 1, 67, 68. And after his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, by the way, in Luke Acts, just so you know, if Luke says someone was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, what is Luke's intention? What's he telling us? Listen, because they're speaking for God. Luke does that over and over again. And usually what they speak about is messianic salvation. Peter, Stephen, Paul, people that were filled with the Spirit and spoke out. Listen to what they say they're speaking for God. So, so was this, such is the case with Zacharias. So he's filled with the Spirit, prophesied, saying, here's what he said, comes out of his mouth. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So the coming of Messiah is a visitation of God. God said he would visit. Now, this is very graphic language. Very tangible. But it's like, in some cases there were, in this case it was tangible, because of the incarnation. And God the Son actually walked the face of the earth and spoke. We've seen, we've touched, we've handled that word of life. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. And he spoke, he is God, he speaks the words of God. And the one who believes in him won't be ashamed. Who's going to listen to him? Who's going to trust him? Just a few. The rest rejected him. So when God visits, the result is either salvation or damnation. Yes. I find it interesting that in the Old Testament, when we have the angel of the Lord, okay, mm-hmm. it, it's for a short period of time, and we have judgment and salvation. Yeah, in many cases, that's a pre-incarnate yep. appearance of Christ. Yeah, but now here, when uh, Jesus arrives on the scene, we have a prolonged it's a longer visitation, right. but there's always judgment and salvation throughout right. his time on the earth. And not only that, during that time, he chose disciples, tra- trained disciples, and then after the resurrection appeared to them in his resurrected body, and then later appeared to Paul as one untimely born and trained him. That's necessary to be an apostle. That's the biblical foundation. So the visitation of God that Zechariah spoke was redemption for his people. But what kind of redemption? Are you going to save them from their sins? Or is he going to save them from Roman dominance politically? That becomes the issue. Another one, I think Simeon said, he is for the rise and fall of many in Israel. 
judgment, salvation. So God's going to visit. Provoked by idolatry, he visits, some are saved. One more and then we'll move on. Isaiah 63, 10. But they resisted. They resisted. Provoked his Holy Spirit. And he was turned, and he was turned to enmity against them. He himself made war against them. Again, uh, this is an English translation of the Septuagint of Isaiah 63:10. What well, is it like that, uh, Brian, in the English, taken from the Hebrew? Right, same idea. They rebelled, grieved his spirit. Here it says he provoked, using that word Luke uses here. Paul was provoked, and he turned to be their enemy. You want to listen to him? He grieved the spirit. It's not good to grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? By coming up with other gods, by refusing to listen to the word of God that's inspired by the Holy Spirit by refusing to listen to the true gospel, explanation about the person and work of Christ. I did a study one time, we presented it, looked uh, up time and time and time again in the New Testament when it says the Spirit came upon somebody and they spoke. And almost every time, if not completely every time, it was about Christ and redemption. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, when he comes, will testify about me. So then the question is, who are all these prophets that are speaking by the Spirit and they can't even come up with the correct doctrine of Christ? Two of us back in the 80s confronted a guy who claimed to be a prophet. We asked him about that. Well, what's your doctrine of Christ? Well, the idea was doctrine causes people to dry up, but the Holy Spirit comes to give us power. I said, okay, but I want to know about the doctrine of Christ. Who is he? And explain it to us. And you know what he said? You're crucifying me. You're persecuting me. He didn't want to answer because he couldn't. Okay, so what kind of prophet can't even articulate the doctrine of Christ? His person, his work, his eternal existence as God and with God, his virgin birth, his sinless life, the hypostatic union, if I want to use big terms, but meaning he's fully human, fully God, his death on the cross, his ascension, his resurrection, his ascension, reigning at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1. If somebody asks you for the reason for the hope within you, you don't say, oh, you're crucifying me. No, you tell it. That's your great chance. Everyone filled with the Spirit loves to talk about Christ. Nope, get, get away from me. The guy went on with a career of being a false prophet taking up offerings in churches and so on. Supposedly doing signs and wonders. But what do they signify? Okay, so they provoked his spirit 
And so God became their enemy. So we have idols in Athens. Let's go to the next slide. Look at what Paul did, Acts 17, 17. Very, very interesting. So he sees all the idols, but still he goes to the synagogue. Notice in, as we've been going through Acts, Paul starts in the synagogue. Because there's a starting point. They have the scriptures. The Bereans had searched the scriptures. They understood the monotheistic God of the Bible. And so Paul would teach that Jesus is the Christ in the synagogues. And some would be saved. That's how the church would start. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who would attend the synagogue service. They were attracted to the monotheism of Judaism, but didn't want to be circumcised or, you know, fully become a proselyte. But they were going to the synagogue and hearing teaching from uh, Tanakh. And in the marketplace, that's the Agora, every day with those who happen to be present. So his reasoning. Let me talk about that. Reasoning, dialegomai, is used 10 times in Acts of the 13 in the entire New Testament. Why do I care about that? Because it helps show that Luke is emphasizing this. Luke had a very robust vocabulary, really knew the Greek. He uses a lot of words that are very specific and very helpful. This is one of them. So Paul reasoned dialogomai. Uh, I have a translation of that from the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. And here's their translation. To speak back and forth or alternately to converse with, reason, present intelligent discourse. That's what that means. I know this isn't true for, for you here, but you would not believe in the 80s when I started teaching verse by verse through the Bible, how many people objected. No, 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 we don't need logic and reason and exegesis. Some people said this, exegesis results in exit Jesus. So Jesus doesn't want us reasoning and studying and trying to understand what God said. Forget about being Bereans. We have the Holy Spirit. We're going to have an experience. So it took years of, well, we're going to teach the Bible. They had all these movements and experiences. They came to not. I know the Bible is God's word. I'll just keep teaching that. And we'll see what we learn. But here's a verse that would say, don't object to reason. The thing that makes human beings, one of the things, not all, but the one of the things that makes human beings unique as God's creatures is their ability to live rationally rather than by instinct. Paul called some false teachers uh, instinctive, like instinctive beasts. Or maybe that was in Jude. I think that was in Jude. Instinct, instinct won't keep you alive for very long. My favorite illustration is always the mushroom hunt. 
you go on a mushroom hunt based on instinct, you probably eat poison. Because you don't know the difference. But if you use reason and evidence and objectivity, you can determine which mushrooms are edible and you're safe. Does that make sense? Humans need reason to know the difference between food and poison. Animals go by instinct. God gave us reason. So those false teachers and false movements that object to reason are shooting themselves in the foot. That's how we survive. That's how we know the difference between the true Christ of the Bible and the false Christs of the cult by the doctrine of Christ. Yes. Hold on, Levon. One second. Here comes the mic. And the scriptures um, tell us that we must examine and test the spirits so that we know what's false and truth. Otherwise, yes. we don't know who's a false teacher if we don't go by what the Lord Examine says. Examine and test. Very good. Very good. There's a word in the Greek, dokimazo. Um, and it, was, it comes in its etymology from a saying. If you had a chunk of mineral and you wanted to know if it was really gold in there or if it was fool's gold, I'm just using an illustration. You go to the assayer, and they would put it in their crucible and do whatever examination was necessary to find out the true nature of what the mineral is and whether it's valuable. The true, when put to the test, is proven genuine. There's a word for that, dokimazo. And we are to do that. We're to put what claims come our way to the test. Otherwise, we'll be misled, we'll be deceived, we'll be harmed, we'll be robbed, like the people that call on the phone and say, we're calling from Microsoft, and somebody hacked your computer, and you better give us your password so we can fix it. Now, are you going to do that, or are you going to put the claim to the test? Well, the test is you called, you said that, boom. You're a liar, you're a scoundrel, you're robbing people. So we have to put things to the test. Yes, uh, Rich, did you have something? I thought you were getting a mic, okay. Just Carla got it. So, so they're reasoning what? Does the Old Testament, excuse me, do the Old Testament scriptures really teach that Jesus is the Christ? Yes or no? Because that's the claim. How can the Old Testament scriptures, reasoning, studying, putting to the test, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, the, script, the apostles use scripture. Psalm 110 and verse 1. The question would be, if this Jesus you're preaching is our Jewish Messiah, why was he rejected and crucified? What's the answer to that? Why isn't he reigning? Answer, Isaiah predicted the sufferings of Christ. 
David predicted the sufferings of Christ and that Jesus did overcome death. Every sermon in the book of Acts talked about the resurrection. That was the proof. Eric had a great sermon last week. If you weren't here, you got to hear Eric's sermon last week, uh, proving through evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Well, then why is he not reigning? Because he's ascended into heaven and he reigns at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, verse 1, most quoted verse in the New Testament. Coming, he's coming again to bring judgment. And then later, after serious judgment, comes the salvation of Israel and the reigning uh, on the earth. So uh, clearly, I have this in my notes, Paul did not believe that the audience or culture determined the message. In Acts 17, 2, it says he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. Let me quote that. Acts 17, 2 and 3 earlier in the same chapter. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned reason, there's our word, with them from the scriptures. Explaining, verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer. See, that was their biggest objective. Objection. Well, if he's the Messiah, why did he suffer? How could Rome defeat God's Messiah? Well, he had to, because the scripture cannot be broken. He had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So we know from earlier in Acts, same chapter, what Paul was doing in the synagogue. So seeing all the idolatry provoked by wickedness, perversity, paganism, idols of idols and idols upon idols, he starts in the synagogue, gives evidence for the Christ, and this dialogue here, that's where we get our word dialogue, dialogue gomai, wasn't, let me explain something. Etymology doesn't determine meaning usage does. Okay? We use the term differently now. Dialogomai meant, um, yeah, speak back and forth, but giving reason, looking to establish the truth. Now, it means talking something over and then doing whatever we want anyhow. Is that how they use it? Well, we're going to get a group to dialogue about, and whoever called the group already knows what they're going to do. Uh, and everybody gets to be right. Has anybody ever been into an everybody gets to be right Bible study? Yes. Well, Paul calls that ever learning and ever coming to the knowledge of the truth. It's not that we're right because we are we, it's because the truth is in the scriptures. And if we can have good evidence that God said that his Messiah would suffer 
and be raised. And Eric gave great evidence for that last week. Then that is the truth. It is that you get to be right and you get to be right and you get to be right. This is the truth. Therefore, God is calling on all men everywhere to repent, having raised a man from the dead. So that's what he was doing. Now, I'm going to show you in a few weeks when I'm back in Sunday school that Paul is willing to deal with anybody's idea, anybody's religion, and still preach Christ and the resurrection. And Paul gets mocked for that on what's called Mars Hill. I'll show you. Uh, actually, look at I think I got. No, that's the Agora there. Still there, by the way, the Agora. Um, marketplace. He went into the marketplace and preached Christ. Now, false teachers in our day say Paul failed at Athens when he gave evidence and logic and reason. And he changed, and from then on, he just did signs and wonders. That's what this whole vineyard movement was grounded on, that fallacy. I did some research on that last week. John Wimber, and Will, that was his main genius. Reason, logic, evidence fails. Signs and wonders succeed. And that started a whole movement, the signs and wonders movement. See Peter Wagner and so on. That's, that's where that all comes from. No, Paul didn't fail. He didn't change. He kept preaching Christ because that's what Jesus commissioned his apostles to do. Forgiveness of sins is never an impertinent issue for anybody because we're all sinners. Seeing a sign and wonder doesn't forgive your sins. The blood of Jesus does. Yes, and then we got to go. We uh, were talking about that this morning, Bob, in that uh, uh, 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy or scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. So right. There is an interpretation, but the meaning is determined by the Holy Spirit-inspired author, not by the reader. It's very interesting, isn't it, that what liberals do to the Bible the reader determines the meaning liberals do to any other written document, like the Constitution. Reader determines the meaning. No, if the reader determined the meaning, human discourse would be impossible. You couldn't have a business, you couldn't drive a car, you couldn't have a manual, you couldn't repair a car, you couldn't build a computer, because whatever documentation is given doesn't mean what it says. It means whatever you decide it means. You couldn't have law. You couldn't have courts of justice. You couldn't have trials. I, I talked about that in my book on immersion. All of human existence would fail in utter chaos if the reader determines the meaning. Do I have any proof of that? Yeah, Tower of Babel. Once God confused their language, they were done because they couldn't communicate. If I tell you something, what I tell you, if I can't communicate what I want to say, I may be wrong, but you should be able to understand what my claim is. And you go, well, I don't know. You could have just told me the moon's made out of blue cheese. It's just babble. You got nothing. So don't buy the lie. 
The author determines the meaning, not the reader or the listener. We might get it wrong, but it doesn't change. It was determined by the author. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. And may we be bold in the gospel, as your servant Paul was, and give evidence for the truth of what you've done and who our Messiah is. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. God bless you. Eric will be preaching upstairs. God bless.